Action and uh, the pursuit of uh, social justice. And uh, I'm joined uh, in studio uh, by uh, Ms. Mpo Rabuyane. Mpo, good evening to you and welcome. Wait, let, let's just, let's make sure I get you on the right microphone there, you know, uh, because uh, so that Bakuve, Bakuve Makaya. Yes, yes, yes. Perfect, perfect. I'm good, man. I'm good. Can't complain. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming through. Um, and I, I did say to our listeners when we started, man, there's just something about all of the tent settlements I've seen springing up in different parts of the city, you know, uh, even here in Seapoint, right through to the city bowl and uh, even... You know, normally you would expect um historically have always been on the outer, outer edge and margins of the city, right? Uh, it just seems like there's been a heavy enforcement and policing of people, poor people out of the city. And it, um, since COVID-19, I can't but see all of this around me. I mean, I saw it in Salt River, saw it in the city, Bow, it's here in Seapoint. What effectively, in your view, has happened to poor people in the city mm. post-2019 also. And what does that tell us about, you know, historically a lot of what has happened in claims and struggles about access to the city here in Cape Town? Mm. It's funny that you mention that you normally would see this type of keeping poor people out and placing poor people out on the peripheries uh, versus seeing that occurrence in the city centers, Mm. in your well-located areas prior to COVID-19. But what the pandemic has shown us Mm. is that there is a huge need for sustainable and affordable housing in the inner city. Mm. Um, What we're seeing is a result of the tenure insecurity Um, that came out of people having lost their jobs, having lost their income, having lost whatever access they had to Mm. keep a roof over their head. Now, you need to remember that most of these people were probably living paycheck to paycheck, and that's how they maintain things like rent. Mm. And with COVID-19 and the subsequent lockdowns, meaning that many businesses um, shutting down, many people losing their jobs, being retrenched, that security was out the window and people literally found themselves on the street. Mm. So you're right in your observation that there seems to be a huge increase on of people living on the streets after COVID-19, primarily because people have never had that security Mm. of tenure in the first place. So interesting. I mean, yesterday, the irony of it like struck me. and, And after that, I couldn't stop seeing it all over the place. I mean, just around parliament, there were probably comfortably, comfortably close to like, say, 60, 70, 80 people outside a soup kitchen around 5 p.m. or so in the evening. And the more I saw that, the more I saw that across the entire city. So on the one hand, it does show there is some solidarity or philanthropic type work to try and deal with the situation as it's unfolding. But that's not a systemic response to what I think you're raising um, as the chronic shortage of affordable and inclusionary housing in the city. You are with Ndifunukwazi. You guys have agitated and picked up struggles on this. Mm. Uh, you were saying to me now off air that a lot of this stuff might seem novel now, but there's a series of preceding waves of struggle. Talk, talk to us about those. 
All right, so I think what we need to do is we need to recognize the mm. history of our land struggle, particularly in the Western Cape. Sure. Because what we're seeing now stems from things like vagrancy laws that were implemented in Van Riebeck's time. Mm. So what what's happening in Cape Town and what has continually happened over time is what we can call a continual dispossession uh, of land from people, uh, specifically black and poor people, mm. you'll notice that um, when looking at the people that you see on the streets uh, and when looking at the people who currently live in the peripheries who have had no choice but to uh, set up their own occupation and eke out you know, their own shelter, mm. um, you'll see that those people are predominantly poor working class black and colored. Mm. And that's just a continuation of the segregationist way that land has been treated, uh, primarily in this province, but I think in the mm. country as a whole, which is an effect of our colonial and apartheid era yeah. laws, um, which in effect has not stopped. And I think the, the sad part is that the response to the need has become so politicized that um, the current administration tends to paint these people as criminal. Mm. So there is a complete uh, denial of the need, which is at the core of these occurrences. Uh, instead, we paint poor people to be criminals. And mm. by virtue of being a criminal, you have no place in the city. So effectively, we're seeing, yes, dispossession, but also disenfranchisement mm. because uh because you can't afford to own a piece of land, because you can't afford to hold on to a roof over your head, you are effectively a non-citizen in the city of Cape Town's eyes because you're not a ratepayer. Mm, mm. You're not a ratepayer. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because this whole notion of citizenship, mm. um, I mean, historically, uh, especially Ape Kappa for, for African people, and let me put that out just uh, because it's always something of interest to me, that you were only a citizen in so far, very much in South Africa, in so far as somebody could employ you, right? Now, we've got the world's highest levels of unemployment or mass underemployment of people of working age. Uh, and yet it still seems we haven't broken loose of that mentality, mentality that, yeah. you know, if you're white, it's fine, right? But if you are African and colored <laughs> uh, in South Africa, um, and maybe, I guess, I'm not sure on the color, but if you're African, you belong somewhere in the Eastern Cape. Um, and so if you go and create a settlement post-2020, call it COVID-19, um, you know, what potentially could happen to you is what happened to Mr. Pauli, who, you know, as he was washing one morning, is mercilessly evicted. Talk to me about how the authorities, and when I say authorities, that's law enforcement, mm. that's the city, mm. have responded to the shortage of affordable housing, if at all. Right, so... Primarily, just taking it back to your observations around how this is a continuation of our historical heritage. Mm. In, the, in the colonial times, a black person could only um, vote, just on this point of citizenship, sure. you could only vote uh, based on the amount of land that you held. 
And then that was regressively taken mm. away and it became on the basis of um, your employability and all yes, of that until yeah. the vote itself was okay, taken yeah. away, right? So this is what we're seeing happening again because the city of Cape Town, in response to these um, new occupations, instead of looking at ways to incorporate these masses of people who evidently don't have a place to call home uh, in terms of providing affordable, well-located accommodation, mm. they instead have issued bylaws that effectively legalize and legitimate the uh, mass eviction of people. And as I said before, the criminalization of poor people mm. who don't have a place to call home. So two bylaws have been enacted in response um, to what we're seeing both on the street mm. and in the occupations. Uh, the Streets Nuisance and Noise Bylaw, which effectively... You're the language of that. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you're, Let's you're, just call it okay, the Okay, the street and nuisance. Uh -huh. Noise. <laughs> let's just let's just call it the streets bylaw for for ease no um so that bylaw regulates nuisances mm. noise things like uh you can't be on the you can't obstruct you know the road and kind of loitering up i'm sure uh, we're going <laughs> as i said it's a continuation of our laws from mm. van Riebeck's time and vagrancy laws and what have you but essentially that bylaw which had been amended now in september 2021 mm allows law enforcement to arrest street-based people who refuse the shelter system. So effectively, what happens, what happens is, <laughs> I see the puzzled look on your face. What happens is um, street-based people will initially be approached, right, um, by social security, I mean, social development services, mm. um, and they will be hopefully counseled and offered alternative accommodation. This alternative accommodation has routinely been shelters, right? And nothing like transitional housing. Mm. Now, the, the, the anomaly there is that the rehabilitation aspect of the support, which is supposed to precede everything else, is only offered upon acceptance of a shelter spot, right? So if I refuse to go to the shelter, that means I can't access any rehabilitation services. No. No, you cannot. Because as I said, if you do not have accommodation or a stable place to call home, uh, preferably rate paying, mm. you are not a citizen in the city of Cape Town. So what they then do is they issue with a notice, right? Mm. And part of that notice is to say that your shelter, so your tent or your rudimentary structure that mm. you've put up to protect yourself from the elements, that is an obstruction in terms of the bylaw and it should be removed in X amount of days. And if law enforcement returns and it's not removed, then they take that shelter from you. Right. Mm. And if you still refuse um, shelter in terms of being put in a the shelter, then you will be arrested. Right. And that's how the city has opted to deal with mm. homelessness. Now, now, but the city has also done something else. Um, and I don't want our listeners to leave with the impression that it's only homeless people that have been on the receiving end of this. Because in a sense, the city, when presented with this challenge of inclusionary housing, so expanding the stock of affordable housing in the city mm. has often opted, certainly from my observation, 
um, to side with developers who bring massive money, balance sheets, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and talk to me about some of those examples, which um, are not only, I guess, in the domain just of um, you know assets that are in the purview of the city itself, mm-hmm. but even you know this platform we're broadcasting on here. I mean, the South African Broadcasting Corporation itself has found itself somewhere in the middle of that. So, so let's maybe take a look at that instances where inclusionary or even social housing could have been constructed uh, for many of the domestic workers, gardeners, and many people who work in the city, mm. uh, who um, are part of the city's working class, who can't access to live in the city. Right. So what the city has done as far back as 2017 mm. was to announce that they are planning to develop 11 sites across the metro okay. that will include uh, mixed housing developments, transitional housing mm. and social housing. And that's supposed to be to the benefit of those who are working at low income jobs and what have you. Right. Mm. But none of these developments have actually taken where, hold. Where were they planned for? Where, where were they going to be built? So these are developments uh, in well-located places across the metro, so okay. primarily in in and around the inner city. Mm. So because the major complaint has been that no affordable housing had been built in the inner city and it's around since 94. So you you can imagine the situation where all of the employment opportunities, all of the amenities, the all the social life is in the city, mm. but all of the developments are happening outside of the city. This is something we see similar to bigger metros Joburg. like Johannesburg yeah. as well with your greenfield projects mm. and what have you, where there's no recognition or there's no actual appreciation of the people that this housing is made for and mm. their patterns and their lifestyles and their communities which which we need to maintain so in response to this thing of having no affordable housing in the inner city and its surrounds the city released that prospectus uh, respect with respect to this 11 sites mm. and to date no real um, construction has happened on these sites all right um, Recently, the mayor has announced that uh, they will be releasing more parcels of land Mm. for the purposes of social housing. But the irony is that uh, recently the National Department of Human Settlements has uh, adjusted uh, the income bans with respect to social housing now to be uh, from, I think, 1,500 Mm. to uh, 22,000. So that would be the upper band. Which is where like FLISP kicks in, I think. Which is where then that gap of FLISP would kick in. But if you reasonably look at, or my mistake, I think it's 3,500. But if you look... Yeah, minimum wage, then kind of 1.5. Yeah, so it's BNG and Mm. social housing, which overlap. But if you look at now the upper band of the social housing bracket, the 22,000, which is... um, probably where most of these developments um, or developers uh, are going to be catering for. Mm. Who in a working class, (laughs) uh, low income earning job? With Cape Town wages. (laughs) No comment on that one. (laughs) Who can afford that 22,000? So who is the social housing for? Effectively, what we're going to see is the creeping in of the middle class, which has been significantly hit by COVID as well, into these developments that are meant for um, these lower income earning sectors of our society, Mm. which then further displaces those who actually need housing um, and they will be left to their own devices. This is also the case where the government is now pushing this 
rapid land release mm. where people are now expected to build from them mm. for themselves. But two questions on that point. Where exactly is this land being released? It's not going to be in Seapoint. I'll give you, I'll tell you that much. And secondly, if you mm. do get that land which has been released, what are you going to use to develop that land? What resources? <laughs> because it's it's sure. it's 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 all a scheme because what we've noticed is that the leading currency that is used in the city of Cape Town is land. Mm. As you had observed earlier, there is some level of preferential treatment to people like developers, mm. to that sector of the market, because there is a reasonable suspicion that there is some beneficial relationship between the administration sure. and uh, developers and such. And they also have predictable cash flow. <laughs> so what, what, what we've been fighting over time is the release of valuable state mm. land to private developers for exclusive developments because already we're sitting with a property market that's 43% luxury housing. Whereas majority mm. of the population, mm. Mm. firstly, <laughs> don't earn over 13,000 per annum per household. And secondly, <laughs> they are in need of housing. So you're looking at a huge affordable housing shortage sure. versus an oversupply of the luxury um, housing segment. But I, I don't want... And Funuambe singing SAPC because you're talking about state <laughs> land, and I could see you just ducking it. So oh, I want us to go straight to the SAPC one. Oh, the right. SAPC was supposed to dispose of uh, apartments a few years ago, I think, in Rocklands. What happened there? So historically, Rocklands has been Rocklands Villa, that is, yeah, yeah. has been a contested site. There was a time where your domestic workers, your gardeners, people earning minimum wage mm. uh, back in the day who had no secure tenure in Seapoint, given the fact that they could be thrown out at the whim of their employer mm. and having lost the last piece of affordable housing that was provided um, in, by way of a block of flats. After all of that happened, they identified this underutilized property, which is mm. Rockland's Villa, right? At that time, it belonged to the SABC and was supposed to be used by SABC staff mm. as live-in accommodation, sure. right? But because this was not happening and because it was underutilized, it looked like a prime site for people to effectively effect their own urban redistribution, yeah. right? So there had been a prior attempt at occupying Rockland's Villa Firstly, to demonstrate the need for um, well-located, affordable housing mm. in the inner city, specifically in places like Seapoint, but also because there were people who um, desperately needed shelter and because their employment was in this place, because their lives were mm. in this place, they effectively had very little choice because transport money is also becoming an issue. That occupation was unsuccessful. But more recently, there was another attempt at occupying also on the same issue. So mm. do you see how history repeats sure, itself in sure, that, in that sure. sense? But fortunately, this time, 
the response was that through the National Department and the Housing Development Agency, mm. which intervened, they um, took up the Rock Villa site, which was on auction at the time sure. because SABC was experiencing some financial troubles. Um, and the HDA intervened okay. and stopped that auctioning off and bought that land mm. and that block of flats. So we are now looking forward to the development of that site so that people can start moving in and we can mm. finally realize this uh, vision of urban land reform, but also mm. having well-located affordable housing where it's most needed. I, I find that so interesting. And maybe just as, as we part, so unfortunately we have run out of time, but that that in a sense is a case in point for how you can take an asset that non-core to the operations of the SABC, to be honest, but use that as a catalyst for some form of small chip away at the spatial apartheid that we continue to see in cities like this. I would think there are many pieces of state-owned you know, apartments in all cities, Teguini, here in Cape Town, in Joburg, mm. in Kabecha, mm. and so mm. on. Mm. Um, if there's any lesson for yourselves, and I guess how the state can do it, even before we get to how we regulate the developers, what would that be? So firstly, I think we need to be clear on the principles that would underpin that approach. And I think one of the principles that we're sorely missing at this point is the valuing of people Mm. over profit. A lot of these sites are underutilized and lying empty because they're being held for speculative purposes. So what we're effectively doing is we're waiting until mm. these things are valuable enough for us to recoup our investments and more rather than providing a safe place for us to mm. live and build our communities. Yeah. Um, so we would need to value the social value of land, right? And then we'd also need to understand and recognize that land is not just an asset, we tend to treat land as a dead thing, as mm. a commodity, but there are various aspects to land that relate to people and our humanity. Land is deeply spiritual mm. for a lot of our people. And land also speaks to one's identity. Again, back to the question of citizenship. I want us to pause here yeah. because I don't want uh, the ads to cut you. So hold that thought. Let's take the brief spot break. When we come back, we'll conclude. Paul? Just before we had to go to that uh, spot break, you were, I guess, talking about land as more than just material and property, but mm. uh, I guess all of the sociocultural and psychosocial importance of land, um, you know, to least of all the indigenous people of uh, this country. And uh, yeah, some of your thoughts on that. That's correct. I mean, we are now seeing um, private developers pitted against indigenous First Nations in the fight over sacred sites mm. because there's the commercial interest. Amazon story at Lisbeth. You yeah, know yeah. the Amazon story. Mm. So there's that commercial interest that's di- like directly opposed to the spiritual significance mm. of that site and the need to preserve that site um, for people to access, uh, for people to revive themselves spiritually, but also Mm. access uh, those ancestral spirits. So there's no real space or avenue given to those arguments because of our concept around land, Um, because we are we have a legal system that conceptualizes of land as something to be owned. Right. Mm. We, We prioritize the rights of ownership over all in terms of land, but there's no real sense that land affects 
all aspects of humanity. Mm. And on the other hand, there's the economic interest that's deeply vested in land and how it's been used as an access. And there again, there's no real avenue for people to explore how land affects their identity and their being, mm. which is just a, a continuation of the commodification sure. of life, right? So sure. this is, this is, this, this is what we're seeing. And I think what we need to understand is that over and above the policies and the legislations, we need to have a concerted push towards recognizing the social value of land. Mm. And once we recognize that and how it affects humanity, then I think there will be a more caring yeah. approach. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at need for housing and the current response as well. Mm. We only spoke about the people living on the street. The people living in occupations in the periphery mm. are also facing by law. The working poor. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're also being penalized and being criminalized mm. because they do not afford a yeah. brick and mortar house. Paul, I want us to leave it there. We might need a, a part two uh, just to unpack so many of the issues. But the point you're making just of economic and social value um, I think is so important and you know, even the mainstream system can't assume that it, it doesn't factor in social value because then wh wh why aren't they building on parks? All of the parks and all this land that's zoned for other Parking recreational parks. use. Parking. Golf courses. <laughs> Paul, let's leave it there. Pleasure catching up with you.